Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church. And visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. I stood here on the platform today. I'm not, I'm not one of these guys that will do this kind of thing and actually live, walk it out in front of you. But let's imagine that I had a tank of helium up here as a prop. And I pulled out a balloon and I filled up that balloon with helium and I tied off the balloon the helium trapped inside of it, and I held it out in front of you, and I let it go. You all have a theory as to what would happen at that point, don't you? You think that because it's filled with helium that the balloon balloon would arise, that it would float to the ceiling, and then maybe after that it would hit one of these lights and it would burst or something like that. It would be a real exciting, you know, little moment in the church service. (laughs) A similar thing has happened to John. John knew the truthfulness of the gospel message. You know, he'd seen Jesus, he'd watched Jesus, he'd heard Jesus. He'd seen Jesus ascend back to the right hand of the Father, and then he'd seen the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the church, and he'd watched 30-plus years of God's Spirit working here on earth, expanding the gospel message to the known world. He knew that the gospel message was true. And over time, John had discovered what the gospel does inside of a believer. He had just come to witness that when the gospel really gets inside of somebody, there are three things that come out of their lives. They begin to reverence, fear, and obey God. They begin to love other Christians, and they continue to confess and believe in Jesus through the duration of their lives. And John, throughout the book of 1 John, has already taught us about each of these three outworkings of the gospel. But today, in verse 1 through 6, he's going to conjoin them together into one small paragraph. And then after that paragraph, John is going to point out three witnesses who testify to the truthfulness of the gospel. And we'll consider those together. So today, we're just going to follow John through the passage, and we're going to notice two things. We're going to notice three outworkings of the gospel itself, that's number one, and then we're going to notice three witnesses of the gospel's truthfulness, number two. So let's look, number one, at the three outworkings of the gospel. The first one, number one, is love. He says in verse one, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Now, this is very similar to things that John has said previously in the book of 1 John, and his point here is to remind us that every true believer in Jesus' gospel message has been born of God. That's what he says there in verse 1. They've been born of God. In other words, for John, believers are God's kids. Now, in other places, John used that truth to help us be encouraged to love one another, You know, John thinks that we should love each other because we're family, we're spiritual siblings. And in other places in 1 John, that's exactly what John communicated. Hey, if we're all God's kids, if we're all spiritual siblings together, then we should love each other. But but here, notice that John does something different. He moves beyond the horizontal argument. Hey, you're my sibling, I should love you, into something different. He says that we should love other Christians 
Not only because they're our spiritual relatives, but because everyone, verse 1, who loves the Father, loves whoever has been born of him. What, what this means, what John is saying, is that I should love you because you're my sibling, definitely, but also because you're God's child. And I love God. In other words, if I love the Father, I will think much of my Father's offspring. This is an easy one to exemplify from everyday life. I have one biological sibling, my little sister. Her name's Brenna. I love her so much. I admire her so much. She's just a great woman, and I've learned a lot from her over the years, and I'm always rooting for her and, and praying for her and you know care about her because we're blood. We're family. She's my sibling, so I care about her, and I love her. But also, in my life, God has blessed me with and put some key friendships in my life. You know, these are also people that I love. And many of those friends, they have gone on to have children of their own. And some of their kids are babies now. Some of them are toddlers. Some of them are elementary school age. Some of them are teenagers. And some of them are grown children. And all of those kids of my friends, I love. They have my heart. I'm rooting for them. I want them to do well. Why? Because they are the offspring of people that I love. That's what John is saying here. He's saying, yeah, sure, we should love each other because we are spiritual siblings, but we should also love each other because we love God. And God had kids, and here they are in Christ Jesus. So we should love those who came from God. Now, this seems like a really important point for modern believers. You know, the new birth, salvation, he says it's something that unites us. But I think many of us would agree that it's a shame how quickly Christians will divide over less consequential issues and matters than salvation. We ought to love others who have been born again regardless of lesser dividing lines like race or gender, nationality, or political affiliation. Listen to me right now. When we sense ourselves more united with non-believers with whom we share those distinctions than we do with fellow believers who do not, something is wrong. Something is wrong. John is telling us, look, we should love those who have come from God. John wishes to tune our hearts to God's frequency. So the, the gospel asks us to love one another because we love God and we are God's kids. Okay, so that's the first uh, big outworking of the gospel that John sees is that we would love other believers, our fellow believers. But there's another crucial outworking of the gospel's truthfulness John wants to tell us about, and it's this. Number two, obedience. Obedience to God's word. Let's look at it in verse two and three. We'll read it together. He says, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Okay, this, this statement, or this little paragraph, verse 2 and 3 from John, it begins with a, with a little twist. It's kind of surprising, actually. He says there in verse 2, look at it again with me. He says, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. Okay, this is supposed to be unexpected, a little bit shocking to the reader that John would say it like this. What, what we would expect John to say is something like this that our love for God is evidenced 
in our obedience to him and our love for other believers. So I love God. How's that evidence? Well, I love other Christians and I'm obeying God. And John has said that kind of thing in other places in this letter. But here, John flips it around. Notice what he's saying. He's saying, instead of saying love for God is displayed in our love for others, he's saying our love for others is displayed by our love for God. In other words, a significant proof of our love for each other is our love for God and our allegiance to his commands. Or or put in another way, when I walk with God and allow him to govern my life, it demonstrates my love for you. Or to bottom line it, one of the most loving things you can do for others is to love and obey God. It's one of the most loving things that you can do for other people is to love and obey God. You see, when you take care of your own walk with God, by loving him and serving him and obeying him, you're doing a good thing for the rest of us in the Christian community. But, but how is our obedience and our love for God personally um, loving towards other believers, loving towards our brothers and sisters in Christ? Well, here are some suggestions. Number one, to love and obey God means that you're going to walk in the light. To love and obey God means that you're going to walk in the light. You'll not allow your life to head into the dark world of disobedience. This is good for the rest of us. Because walking in the darkness, what it does is it introduces chaos and evil into the community. So you make the church community better when you're walking in the light. Another way uh, that loving God is loving believers is To love and obey God means that you'll spend time with God. Now, this is good because the Bible teaches that when you spend time with God, you are changed to be more like Jesus. And you all are wonderful people, but it's really neat when you become more like Jesus. That's really good. It's good for us. It's good for the community. Another thing is that to love and obey God means you will allow space in your life for course correction. See, even the holiest person amongst us has blind spots, areas that need to be corrected, shifts that we need to have in our lives. And the person who's loving God, walking with God, they open themselves up to those course corrections, the voice of the Spirit saying, hey, stop doing that, start doing this. And that's good for the community. Change is hoped for, at least, amongst those who love God. And to love and obey God means that you will not become an instrument of temptation towards others in the church family. You see, carnal Christians often harm other believers. They invite them into gossip and slander and anger and complaint and pride and lust or other weaknesses of the flesh. But the obedient and godly believer, they're not a source of such temptation. And then finally, to love and obey God means you become a positive contributor to the strength and health of the overall group. You see, the Bible teaches that the church is a collection of people. The the Greek word is ecclesia, it's a gathering. And everyone in that gathering has different levels of spiritual health and vitality and maturity. And when you love and obey God personally, the group at large gets a little bit healthier than it was before. But we often forget about this. We forget how loving it is towards other believers when we keep our relationship with God in a healthy place. We often forget this. But when you become the best version of yourself, the community becomes enriched by your life. 
And if you neglect your walk with God and disobey him, you are hurting the community. When I grew up, there was a famous rapper who said these line, this line. He said, check yourself before you wreck yourself. <laughs> but John has a bigger idea in mind. His idea is this, check yourself before you wreck your church. That's the idea. He's saying, look, one of the lo most loving things you can do is take care of your relationship with God. Imagine it like this. Imagine a large boat with tons of passengers. And this boat is unique because every passenger on the boat gets an anchor for themselves. They're holding that anchor. As long as every passenger has the anchor on the deck of the boat, the boat has a chance to make some progress. But if individuals on the boat start throwing their individual anchors overboard, the entire operation is slowed. Let this become a vision for your walk with God. When you love him and obey him, your anchor is up and the church can make progress. But when your walk is without love and obedience to God, the church slows down. All right, now there's a little line that we have to think about before we move on to the third outworking. If the first one is love for our brothers, the second one is obedience to God. Before we look at the third one though, we have to look at a little line that John said uh, there in verse 3. Some of you might have, when I read it, uh, inwardly objected to it. He said at the end of verse 3, and his commandments are not burdensome. Okay? The not is in the original Greek, in case you're wondering. <laughs> because I think some people would say, no, it certainly can't say that. It certainly should, should mean his commandments are burdensome. I mean, how can John say this? After a lifetime of allegiance to Jesus, the suffering he endured, this is the guy who was banished to the island of Patmos for the testimony of Jesus. Church tradition says that they tried to kill him by boiling him alive. I mean, this man suffered intensely for the Lord. And love seems like a difficult thing. Denial of the flesh, if we're honest, is a constant battle. And service to Jesus is often discouraging. So how can John say something like this? How can he think that the commands of God, how can Scripture say that the commands of God are not a burden? Well, let's think about this for a second. One way that they're not a burden is that Jesus condensed the commands of God down to their rawest form, to love God and to love others. They came to Jesus one day and said, what's the greatest commandment? To love God, and the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And within these, all the law and the prophets are bound up. So in one sense, they're not burdensome because Jesus took the complex law and he simplified it for us. But another reason his commandments are not burdensome is because when you become a Christian, we're under what's called the new covenant. What that means is the spirit of God regenerates you and comes to live inside of you. And he begins, as you walk with God, to write the law of God upon your very heart. In other words, his desire is to change our inner motivations. So this is one other reason why the commandments of God are not burdensome is because he's changing us from the inside out to want to keep the commands of God. But another way that his commandments are not burdensome is, is through comparison. By simply comparing with other religions that exist throughout the world. And John could certainly do this in his era by comparing what Jesus brought with the legalistic systems that he grew up in. The religious leaders of Jesus' day, they tortured the people with obligations that they could never keep. 
And I think today the world is littered with religions and philosophies like secular humanism that are impossible for people to keep, just putting burdens on people that they could never adhere to. In comparison, then, Jesus' yoke is no burden at all. But another reason that Jesus' commandments are not burdensome is because of their life-giving nature. In obedience to God, what does it lead to? It leads to health in your life. It leads to good and positive outcomes within your life. It's like when you eat nutritious foods. Your body is thankful for what you have put inside of it. There will be positive or healthy results that flow from it. And when we obey God, spiritual and emotional health comes. I could say it like this. The healthiest lives are obedient lives. The healthiest lives are obedient lives. And it's not only good for us, it's also, uh, lead, it also leads to deep satisfaction and joy. But there's one final reason I'd like to mention that Jesus' commandments are not burdensome. And it's simply this. It's because we love God. We love God. There's a little story in the book of Genesis. It's about Jacob who wanted to marry a woman named Rachel who had a father named Laban. And Laban made a deal with Jacob that if he worked for him, it ended up being first seven years, but then he tricked him to make it 14 years. Then he could marry Rachel, his daughter. And it says in Genesis 29, verse 20, that those 14 years seemed to Jacob but a few days because of the love he had for her. You know, when we love God, it becomes easier to keep his commands. The, the love for God makes the commands of God easier for us to obey. All right, let's look at the last outworking of the gospel, though, that John mentions. It's number three, it's belief or faith. Belief or faith. He says in verse four and five, he says, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? All right, at this point, you know, as John is saying this, you know, God's commands are not burdensome. John's readers and, and us at this point might have been thinking about the pull of the world. That's what he talks about here in verse 4 and 5, the world. Everything in the world system under Satan's power, everything it offers us is attractive. It's tempting. It, its draw is one of the main reasons why we might think that it's hard for us to keep the word of God, the commandments of God. And, and it's one of the main reasons why we might think that the commandments of God actually are burdensome. You know, we all know this. You know, we can talk about victory over lust and greed and pride all day long, but then we're bombarded with images and philosophies and temptations. They're thrust upon us. And in those moments, we feel the power of the world. We feel the pull of the world. And there's this sense like, man, I think I might want to go in that direction. The image I have in my mind is in the first Star Wars movies when young Luke Skywalker was feeling the pull of the dark side. You know, that feels so often like what it's like for a Christian to walk through this life, walk through this world. And I've made my commitment. I know what I want to be. But there's this thing that is pulling against me. I don't know if I can resist it this thing called worldliness. And so often we feel weak under its pressure. 
But for this, John wants us to remember something. Notice what he said in verse 4. He said, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. In other words, John wants us to remember how our faith overcame the world in the past. You know, when you became a believer, you gained victory in Jesus Christ. Your faith helped you to overcome the world in verse 4. He says it in the past tense. So you've already, by faith in Jesus, overcome the world. Because when you became a believer in Jesus, what happened to you? Your whole position was altered. You were shifted from being out of Christ or in Adam to being in Christ. The world's destiny for you was replaced with God's destiny or plan for you. So John's logic here is really simple. If your faith, listen to me now, if your faith tapped into God's victory to overcome the world at your conversion, then your continued faith will help you overcome today. The very thing that helped you overcome in the past is what can help you overcome today. That's why he says in verse 5, he asks it like this, who is it that overcomes the world? Verse 4, he said overcame. In verse 5, he says overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So in verse 4, we've overcome. In verse 5, we can still overcome. Our faith overcame the world at our new birth but it's also by faith experientially that we overcome the world today. You could say it like this, faith unlocks your justification, but faith also unlocks your sanctification, your victory today. And faith is how we're supposed to live with God as we sojourn through this life, so as we sojourn, sojourn through this world. You know, it's, it's, it's uh, what we see is hard to resist, but we walk by faith, not by sight. This is the third thing that John wants us to know, that the outworking of the gospel's truthfulness is that we would continue to walk by faith. You know, he's worthy of our faith today. You know, you might be listening to this right now and you might just be feeling like you're so weak. Have you ever just felt that way? You know, like, man, I want to be so strong. I want to be strong in the Lord. I want to... I want to have this resolve and conviction. I want to be faithful, but you could, maybe some of you, you're feeling that inner battle, that inner weakness. There's mounting pressures on your life or temptations that are continually like the ocean waves pounding against you. And you might feel like you're hanging on by a thread, that your flame is about to extinguish. But you know, they prophesied of Jesus in the Old Testament and it was quoted in the New Testament that Jesus would not break a bruised reed and that he would not quench a smoldering wick. You see, he looks at us in our weakness and he's not ashamed of us. He doesn't turn his back from us. He doesn't say, how dare you struggle with temptation? You should be stronger than this. No, he continually comes to us and says, look, when you are weak, when you are dead in your trespasses and sins, my spirit spoke to you, my spirit woke you up, helped you believe, and I made you alive. It was by faith that you tapped into my strength. And today still, I'm not expecting you to be strong in your own power, in your own might. Still, I'm expecting you to turn to me, to look to me, to help you continue to believe that you might be able to overcome. So those are the three outworkings of the gospel's truthfulness that John envisions, love, obedience, and faith, all right? 
But in thinking about our faith in Jesus, um, it's helpful to think of the witnesses who testify to the truthfulness of the gospel. So let's look at the second portion of this text and think about the three witnesses that John had in mind. He says in verse 6 and 7, he says, and 8, he says, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. All right, in, in the paragraph I just read, John mentions that there are three that testify that Jesus is the Son of God. He says one witness is the Spirit, another is the water, and, the, and another is the blood. All of them proclaim that Jesus is the Savior, Christ, Messiah, who came to deliver humanity from their sins. But what is John talking about? What's the water? You know, what's the blood? And we probably have a better idea of what the Spirit is, but what, what are these elements that John says are testifying of Jesus. Well, first let's consider the first two. He says the water and the blood. Jesus came by the water and the blood. Uh, he then, in verse 6, repeated the idea and said, not by water only, but by the water and the blood, which maybe helps us understand what kind of false teaching John was dealing with. Probably there were people saying he came by water only, but not water and the blood. It seems that what John meant is that Jesus' baptism, the water, and the cross, the blood, both testified about Jesus' nature and character. John felt compelled to make it clear that Jesus had come by both the water and the blood. Now, John seems to have emphasized Jesus' blood because of the false doctrine, like I said, that was floating around the churches and regions he, he served. The, their false teachers are all gone. They're all dead now. But it seems like what they probably were saying was something like this. When Jesus was baptized, the Christness came upon him and remained on him for three and a half years. And then when he went to the cross, the Christness departed from him and the man Jesus died. But not God-man, just a man named Jesus died. This is, in a sense, a denial of the incarnation. But John wants us to know that Jesus did not cease to be the Son of God at the cross, and he did not begin to be the Son of God at baptism. He's always been God the Son and the Son of God. And if he's not, then he was ill-equipped to reconcile us to God. You see, without the incarnation, there's no redemption, there's no propitiation, there's no salvation for humanity. And so really, it seems that what this was was an attack against the incarnation of Jesus. But he says also that the Spirit testifies of Jesus. Look at that in verse 6 and in verse 8. How does the Spirit testify to us of Jesus? Well, one way was actually at the water baptism of Jesus. Remember, the Spirit descended upon Jesus at his baptism in bodily form, like a dove. So just this, this soft landing upon Jesus. And from that point on, Jesus's ministry and miracles were fueled by the power of the Holy Spirit. He was driven into the Spirit to be tempted. He was driven into Nazareth to, to preach. He was driven into Capernaum working miracles. But the Spirit also bears witness about Jesus in the Word, right? 
You know, he moved Jesus' men to write about Jesus, to record what they saw about him. All of Scripture testifies of him. That's why he's called, verse 6, the Spirit is called the truth. But the Spirit also, if you think about it, bore witness about Jesus after Jesus was gone. You know, the Spirit was poured out upon the church. They had gifts that they used to take the gospel throughout all the world. And I think he's still gifting and empowering people today for that very same mission. And finally, the Spirit testifies of Jesus because he's the one who produces internal conviction that every person needs in order to believe in Jesus in the first place. He's the one who opens our eyes. He's the one who today gives sight to the blind and convicts us of sin. Notice what Jesus said in John 16, verse 8, about the Spirit. He said, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So whenever that point was in your life, if you've had that point in your life where you felt that conviction, you knew that it was time for you to surrender your life to him, that was the Holy Spirit of God that was driving that, authoring that inside of you. And so John rejoiced at all three of these witnesses, the spirit, the water, the blood. He said in verse 8, they all agree together. But there's one more bonus witness that John wanted to mention. It's just God himself. So let's read of that in verse 9 to the end of our passage. He says in verse 9, he says, But if we, receive the tes- if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony. Here's what God has said as he's testified of Jesus, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his son, verse 11. And verse 12, whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son does not have life. Again, very black and white from John, right? He just says there's two camps, those who have life, those who don't have life, and life is found in the Son. And the Father, he's saying, has testified of this very thing. The first thing he does, though, is he thinks about a court of law. And he says, look, in a court of law, we receive the testimony of other human beings, the testimony of men. And that's good. That's right. That's a normal thing for a society to do. But John, in his mind, says, if we're going around listening to the testimony of humans, then we should go even above that, and we should listen to the testimony of God, because it's greater. God is the one, he says in verse 9, who's born this testimony of the Spirit and the water and the blood. Belief in Jesus, verse 10, is the acceptance of God's testimony. And to reject his testimony makes God a liar and puts you outside of having the life that is in his son. So here's the question that we should ask at this point. How in the world did the father testify that Jesus is his son? How how did the father witness to that reality? Well, one thing that we might think of is we might think of the times where the Father spoke from heaven during Jesus' earthly ministry. Did you know that that happened three separate times during Jesus' earthly ministry? And this is important because in the book of Deuteronomy, it says by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every testimony or word will be established. So three times the Father spoke during Jesus' 
earthly ministry. He spoke at Jesus' baptism. This is my son in whom I'm well well pleased. He spoke again at the Mount of Transfiguration. This is my son, hear him. And then he spoke again during the Passion Week of Jesus, affirming that Jesus needed to be lifted up so that all could be drawn to himself. So perhaps John is thinking about that. At each moment or stage of Jesus' life and ministry, the Father bore witness in that he vocally affirmed who his son is and was. But John also might have been thinking, I mean, just think about it like this. How did God testify that this is my son? Well, maybe another thing that John is thinking of is the wild, miraculous life that Jesus lived. I mean, supernatural events just surrounded the entirety of his life. Not just in what he did, but even in his birth. Now, angels appearing to shepherds, wise men coming from the far east to try to find him because they were divinely uh, told about him. Simeon and Anna, two aged prophets that lived in or spent time in the temple precincts who when they saw baby Jesus prophesied over him and affirmed that he was the Messiah that Israel had waited for. All of that was testimony from the father about his son. But then Jesus grew up The Spirit came upon him, and Jesus' life, the miraculous things that he did, not just that surrounded him, but that he did, also were testimony from the Father. I mean, he walked on water. He multiplied bread and fish in his hands. He turned water into wine. He healed countless people of their afflictions. He brought three human beings back to life from death. And then finally, he himself rose from the grave. All of these were ways that the Father could testify to the truthfulness of Jesus' claim to be his son. And then accompanying all of this is the witness of the prophetic utterances of scripture. These came from the Father by the Spirit through men of God. You know, the prophets of old, they told of the time and place of the Messiah's birth. They said that he would be from Bethlehem, but also from Egypt, and also from Nazareth. And the events in Jesus's early life mandated that he spend time as a little baby or as a toddler in all three of those places so that it could be said that he was from all three. They, in the Old Testament, talked of the virgin birth. They spoke of the way and the time that he would enter into Jerusalem riding on a colt. They foretold that he would be rejected by the people of Israel. They predicted very specific details surrounding the events of his death including his beatings, the dividing of his garments, the piercing of his side, the mocking of the people, and even the method of crucifixion they predicted years before crucifixion had even been invented as a a means of the death penalty. And in all these ways and more, the Father testifies of the truthfulness of the gospel. He declared the reality of Jesus. He witnessed to the person of Jesus. You see, that's what we are. Believers, we're we're believers. We're we're believing something, but we're believing someone. We're believing the Father, and we're believing in what he has said about his son, Jesus. But just because we're believers, just because we have faith, it doesn't mean that we aren't standing on a firm foundation. This isn't just a feeling that we have. I think that God the Father has done an excellent job declaring to this planet 
the way of salvation as is found in his son, Jesus Christ. He has testified to the world, believe in Jesus. He is my son. And when we believe in him, what does he say in verse 11? He says, we have life, eternal life. It's in his son. You know, we don't, we don't follow a philosophy. We don't follow a program. We believe in a person. We believe in Jesus. We don't attempt to attain God by taking steps towards the divine. It doesn't mean as a Christian that we adopt a certain lifestyle and that's what makes us who we are. No, we become Christians by birth, by believing in Jesus. And that birth occurs because of what he has done for us and our belief in him. It's belief in him that makes us children of the living God. We're regenerated by him and we're brought into life. And God has testified of all of this in his son. This is one of the things I really like about Christmas time because in our culture at least, no matter how hard people will try to, you know, de-Jesus Christmas time, there's just something about the gospel that just breaks through. It's like we can't help but sing and hear these songs that if you really listen to them, they are explicit descriptions, clear descriptions of the gospel message itself. I think that God has done an excellent job of setting this whole thing up so that the world will know. This is who Jesus is. He has testified of him. But of course, we're called to testify ourselves as well. All right, before we close and take communion, let me give you some applications of this, these uh, 12 verses that I think might be helpful. Number one, you know, he mentioned there at the beginning that one evidence of our love for God is our love for other believers. And so, you know, we should ask the question, what are lesser dividing lines that I have allowed into my life? You know, or have there been things that I've said, like, I won't fellowship with a believer if they are like this or if they're like that. But, um, you know, we should be thinking about that and say, you know, the, the main thing is, are they, are they in the body of Christ? And if they are, I should love them. Number two, you know, he talks about how a love for God is the best thing you can do for someone else. Your walk with God, obedience to God is the best thing you can do for someone else. So think of a pastime that the sin you committed or maybe someone else committed produced significant damage in the lives of others. Now just think about that, not for condemnation's sake, but just for, to, to be real, to know like this is what happens. And then without shame or without bitterness, shame for yourself if it's you, bitterness towards another if it's someone else, tell God, I'm not gonna do that. You know, I don't wanna repeat that pain. I want, I want this to be over with. I want to be a blessing to the people in my life. I'm going to walk with you. And then maybe another thing you could do is think of someone you know who, because of their obedience to and love for God, has positively impacted your life. You know, just somebody that because they took the Lord seriously, they were faithful, they made a difference in your life. And without feeling inferior to them or, or excusing the reason why they are the way they are so awesome, you know, without having that feeling, just tell God that you want to make a similar kind of impact in the lives of others. Number four, think of a command of God you have previously considered burdensome. All right, he says that. The commands of God are not burdensome. So just think of a command of God that you've thought, God, that one's really hard. 
You know, there are some that are really easy, but that one is really hard for me. And then commit to God that you'll no longer think of his command that way. Say, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for thinking of this as some impossible thing that I could not do. I'm not going to think of it as burdensome anymore because your word says that your commands are not burdensome. And then number five, you know, if faith is what helps us overcome, then consider ways that you can activate your faith to overcome the world or the world system that we're under. God has given us all kinds of ways to activate our faith. It could be through prayer, it could be through study, it could be through fasting, it could be through uh, more fellowship, it could be through service, it could be through reading and study, uh, it could be through generosity and giving. There are a lot of different ways that our faith can be activated, and if we want to overcome, then we're going to have to activate the faith that God has given to us and live by faith. And then just for the whole last section about God testifying the, the, the water, the blood, the spirit, and the Father testifying, I just encourage you, you know, as I've encouraged you in the past, continue to read books that build up your faith. You know, it's one thing to know that they're there. It's another thing to actually read them. So, you know, spend some time reading them. You know, ask for an Audible subscription or something for Christmas and, you know, get yourself, you know, just continually feeding on things that are going to build up your faith um, and, and help you understand just how wonderful and truthful uh, the message of the gospel is. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.